Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and we are wrapping up our little summer mini series on Boston Mormons. So, as promised, I brought back Brian Buchanan to talk about William Smith. And one of the things I want to talk about that Brian points out in this podcast are the sisters of Joseph Smith. Did you know that Joseph Smith had sisters? Lots of people actually don't know that, and it's kind of bonkers. So as we go forward in the summer, I want to talk more about them, and I want to thank Brian Buchanan for bringing them to our attention. If you're enjoying this series, throw a few dollars my way. You can donate on your polygamy.com, or what I really would like you to do is become a Patreon subscriber at Patreon backslash year of polygamy. So go join, become a donor. You can donate $1 per episode. That would be really awesome. So now let me bring you in to Brian Buchanan. Okay, let's welcome back Brian Buchanan. Brian, we just had you on an episode or so ago. Can you say hello? Good to be back again. Fun to talk Boston. And uh, man, we've got a good story tonight. So So again, for the people, I know you did this on our Sam Brannon episode, but will you tell people a little bit about yourself and who you are? Sure. So my name is Brian Buchanan, and I work at a independent bookstore, Benchmark Books in Salt Lake, and have a long and occasionally addictive interest in Mormon history. So there's all sorts of fun rabbit holes to go down. And I would just say that if you are just tuning in, you need to go back and listen to, we're doing this mini-series on Boston, and we started with Brian talking about Sam Brannan. So if you haven't heard that yet, you want to tune in and learn about Sam Brannan before we talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is William Smith. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he uh, he had some stiff competition with his brothers, but in a lot of ways, William is the most colorful. And uh, we mentioned with Brannon that, you know, after he gets excommunicated, he kind of gets written out of Mormon consciousness. And that kind of happens to William, too. I mean, he's a he's an important guy, but not a whole lot known about him, I would say, among your your average Mormons. So, well, we'll let's set this up for people, because, you know, like the other Smith family, he comes from Vermont. But really, where I think he gets really interesting in, in my mind is in Boston. And as we talked about before, the majority of our research is coming from work that Connell O'Donovan has done or Will Bagley. But William Smith, we, what, how I like to picture it is we have all the happenings going on in Nauvoo that everyone's always talking about. We all know the history of Nauvoo really well. But what we don't know is that over in Boston, William Smith is running basically his own version of Mormonism. And because of who he is, he runs the authority as if he's Joseph Smith. So let's let's get into it. Sure. And with William, he really, I mean, this, this idea that he can run the show there is, is not new. So let's, let's do some background with him because he's got some fun stuff. So um, as one of the nine children born to Lucy Mack and Joseph Smith Sr., he's the second to last of the brothers. He's six years younger than Joseph, and he definitely suffers from younger brother syndrome, and that will rear its head many times. I mean, in his early years, Alvin's kind of the the star of the show. And then obviously later Joseph and Hiram are are the ones that are notable. But uh, as, a, as a young kid, he seems to be pretty unremarkable. You know, they go work the farm and, and, uh, but he was not happy with people that called them lazy. So he said, we cleared 60 acres of the heaviest timber I ever saw. If you will figure up how much work it would take to clear 60 acres of heavy timberland, Trees you could not conveniently cut down, you can tell whether we were lazy or not. So yeah, <laughs> William, he would, he would tell you what he thought. And wasn't um, he? Didn't he? Um, he was said that when Joseph found the gold plates, he handled them, but he wasn't allowed to see them or something. He was allowed to reach in the case and touch them, but he couldn't see them. Joseph wouldn't let him see him. He yeah, apparently gets to to handle the plates somewhat in the house, but. Uh, um, I'm not one of the official witnesses. Yeah, and, um, and this is, I think, a good metaphor to explain his life, right? Like, he'll get close enough, but never quite the status that he's looking for. Yeah, he doesn't get picked to be on the team. So, yeah, that will definitely, that's a theme that will reappear 
all throughout his Mormon life. Not just Brighamite Mormonism, for that matter. I mean, <laughs> everywhere he goes later in life, he wants to be the guy, and no one really wants to trust him to be the guy. That's so. a nice teaser. I, I like that. Yes. <laughs> um, I, we're maybe ignoring the elephant in the room that maybe the most important part of William is that he was tall. So, I mean, he's 6'3", which at the time is huge. So that that helps rehabilitate William for me, definitely. He you used l- you like your early church leaders tall, huh? Exactly. That's that's, you know they're good if they're tall. That's You can always tell a good man that way. Uh, and that's that's it. why John C. Bennett didn't make it very far. He's a little guy. He's just this little guy. Just a little guy. guy. <laughs> and William would use that height to his advantage. Um, Lucy tells a great story when this crew comes to the house and they're trying to put Joseph Smith senior in debtor's prison. She says, William seized, seized a large hand spike, sprang upstairs and in one instant cleared the scoundrels out of the chamber. They scampered downstairs. He flew after them and bounding into the very midst of the crowd. He brandished his hand spike in every direction, exclaiming away from here. You cut throats instantly, or I will be the death of every one of you. Wow. Yeah. William, you didn't mess with the Smith family while we don't. Now, I don't know if you can recall this, but I think mm-hmm. it was Joe Geisner or Tom Kimball that told me this story. Um, that there, Will, William Smith was one of the guys responsible for one of the fist fights in the Kirtland Temple. And I think he was defending Joseph Smith's honor. Do you remember this story? Yes. So this is after Safety Society collapses and Kirtland's kind of a bit chaotic. Warren Parrish, I think Parrish is at the stand talking and he insults, or at least in William's mind, insulted Joseph senior and William gets up, grabs him and is going to physically throw him out of the temple. And then John Boynton, one of the original 12 also points, I think he had like a sword or something that he points at him and is like, put him down. (laughs) Yeah. Like this is what I love about the history of the Kirtland temple. It, (laughs) And we did a panel on this at Sunstone one year that was really great, but that place was crazy. I mean, people were getting drunk on the sacramental wine. There were fist fights. There's one time a guy jumped through the window like a demon out of the stand and was speaking in tongues. And and I think this I, one of the stories I heard, and maybe it's the same one, where they pull the saber off the wall to, to enforce the fight. I just like, that's when church was fun, right? Uh, yeah, when you got there, you never knew exactly what was going to happen. We'll get there eventually in just a minute, but a great similar story of Quorum of the Twelve meeting. So, yeah, yeah early Mormonism was a hoot. Yeah, well, was- and William, and maybe this is what you're alluding to, but William was known for trying to pick physical fights with his brothers in public. Yep. That's exactly it. Yes. <laughs> it's a good one. Before we get there, we got to – William is pretty – indifferent to Mormonism. I mean, you know, when he, when Joseph starts telling his family about things, there are, I mean, already at the first, you can see alliances. So Hiram is definitely on board. Um, Alvin's on board. The sisters seem to be on board. Um, William though, he doesn't really seem to care. Like I picture William as you know, the stereotypical, kind of teenager that's like meh whatever and but the thing is is he didn't have anything to do he had no phone so if he's not interested in listening to joseph what can he do go out and dig more stumps i mean at least joseph had stories to tell um but there is a shift and he does finally engage in his brother's religion and he's uh he's baptized a couple months after the church is organized and then he goes back to Palmyra as a missionary. And then that kind of starts a series of missions. So this is very common in the early days is, you you know, the, the two-year mission thing obviously is much, much later. So they would go for a few months and just kind of pick a direction and go there kind of thing. So they'd go, you know, they'd go to cities and kind of just travel through. And so they would do these really short-term missions. And through this experience, William develops a reputation as a pretty good speaker. And, you know, throughout his life, even people that didn't like him would agree that he was a pretty good speaker and he had some charisma there. And so while he's on one of these short time missions, he's with Hiram. So they go to Pennsylvania and they meet the Grant family. 
one of the brothers is Jedediah Grant, who later First Presidency and Mormon Reformation fame. We and call him Brigham Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer, yeah. That Jedediah. I, it's funny. Um, Jedi and William will butt heads later. And I think it was probably because they were so similar. I mean, they were both fiery speakers and kind of hot tempered. So, yeah, I think they were they were probably too alike to to get along, maybe. Wow, I never thought about that comparison, but I like that. Yeah, I mean, they <laughs> when either of them got up to speak, you pay attention because who knows what's coming. But we've got some sisters in the family. So we've got Caroline, who's 18, and then Roxy Ann, who's only seven at this time. So put Roxy Ann aside for a little bit. We'll talk about her later. But uh, so they, they meet, they baptize some of the family, and they move on. But two months later, William comes back. Now, they've, they've set up branches that certainly they could check on, but it's pretty clear that Caroline's what was bringing them back. And sure enough, they're married in the next year in 1833. And sadly, Caroline leaves virtually no writings, no journals, no correspondence. So we have to try to piece her story together from silence. I Have you mentioned this in the podcast ever before? No. Ah, so hard telling the stories because we just have so little in terms of records. And it's sad because, I mean, we're going to go through William's chaotic, colorful life. And at all these points, you're left wondering, what's what does Caroline think about any of this? I mean, it would be so fascinating and enriching to, to see the other side of the coin, you know, how does Caroline experience all of these key events? How does Caroline experience polygamy, you know, all and William's craziness? What does she think about any of this? So, yeah, unfortunately we'll, we'll get a few hints at things, but that's about it. Um, so they honeymoon, then they go back and they live with Lucy and Joseph senior for a few years, which, Almost all of the siblings did, so that was, was pretty common there. Then in 1835, we get William gets his first significant position. So he's called as one of the 12, and this is what you referenced earlier. Um, it comes from later accounts, but it seems that, that Phineas is chosen, and then Joseph says, quote, uh, William's Now Phineas is uh, Brigham Young's brother. Brigham's brother, yeah. And then Joseph apparently insists on William because, quote, it was the only way which he could be saved. Otherwise, we would not have chosen him. So that's an interesting thing. And uh, it is late. And, you know, they're, they're mad at William by this point. So, you know, there's, there's certainly some bias there. But there are other times where we have contemporary evidence that Joseph will intercede for William. So, I mean, it's plausible. Certainly. I mean, at this point, I see him. He's always he's a younger brother, always getting in a little trouble, can't <laughs> quite be successful, trying yep. to, you know, chase after in a resentful way his family's legacy. And mm-hmm. Joseph Smith is really just trying to contain him. <laughs> he's more successful at sometimes. Okay, here we go. Back to when you mentioned fistfights. So in, uh, in Kirtland, there's a high council meeting. And William actually brings the charges here. And it's, it's, it's interesting because we get a sense of maybe William differing from Joseph on some things. But so he, he charges this man with beating his teenage daughter. And as I recall, it's from a first marriage, not polygamous. We're not there yet, but the, the first wife had died and he'd remarried. And, and so he'd beaten this daughter and Joseph apparently sides with the man but then the council dismisses for the afternoon and they don't, they don't make a decision yet. And then later that night they come back, they reconvene and they call um, Lucy, Lucy Mack up to give testimony. And she says some things and she apparently had repeated things that had been discussed er- earlier. She hadn't been there. And Joseph at one point kind of tries to move her along, you know, come on, mom, we already talked about that. And William gets mad and, it gets pretty ugly, and William finally says, quote, he would not set down unless Joseph knocked him down. <laughs> um, didn't make it to, to punching yet, but um, it's going to get there. 
And uh, so, like you said, you know, Joseph is constantly trying to contain. So he meets with William. He tries to, they try to talk it out. Doesn't work. And William, in this dramatic gesture, he send, he mails in his elder's license and he's done. <laughs> now, so now what year is this? So this is, um, I think this is 1836. Okay, because, I, right. I mean, the apocryphal story is that when Joseph Smith is killed, William Smith is healing from a beating that he received from Joseph Smith. Yes. So, like, a beating it, that he will get in the next story. Okay, so, yeah. So I just want you to picture... You know, these are frontiersmen. Like, we have this, like, very sanitized view of Joseph Smith now. But, like, he and his brothers were punching each other and getting in fights and coming home drunk and causing trouble. So, yeah, I mean, we've got this uh, we've got this culture of honor. So, you know, you don't get to insult dudes. Dudes don't take well to this. And, you know, by all accounts, they all seem to be stronger than average dudes. And, you know, I mean, obviously, with Joseph, we have all sorts of wrestling stories and and you can picture that as they're growing up, they're constantly beating on each other. So this is nothing new. It's just playing out in public now. So after this, this you know, his dramatic gesture, he's kind of estranged from Joseph, estranged from the church. And then he starts a debating school in his house. And Joseph comes to one of the meetings and listens to how it's playing out. And by the end, he feels like it's going to create too much conflict. And so he suggests that they, they quit it. By this point, you can guess William's response. He's like, this is my house, Joseph. You can stick it in your ear, man. And uh, the 12 side with Joseph. And so then the, the next day they have a meeting to talk about it and heats up again. And Joseph goes to take off his coat before he can get his arms out of the sleeve. William charges him and just beats the crap out of him. And the uh, the summary is that the prophet was, quote, Unable to sit down or rise up without help. So, yeah. And there's stories that the the effects of that stayed with him his whole life. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just step back and from a current contemporary perspective, we're in a meeting of the 12. And I mean, you know, just picture hearing in the trib about they're in a meeting and uh, Christofferson gets mad at something and, you know, starts wailing on Rasband. I mean, by our eyes, this is just so totally unimaginable, but uh, this is early Mormonism. It's raw. It's it's a family church, for one thing. I mean, it's, you know, Smith family dynamics are the dynamics of Mormonism in a lot of ways. So, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I was thinking about it. If you remember in Dan Vogel's biography of Joseph Smith, he sees Joseph dynamics and, and family dynamics playing out in the Book of Mormon narrative. So when William, later in life, you know, he'll talk about how Joseph would lecture him about stuff all the time. I mean, can't you just see the relationship between Nephi and the brothers? And that's just exactly what it sounds like. You've got the righteous brother who's always lecturing the, the quote-unquote bad brother. And, and so, yeah, I very much some parallels there. Yeah, I love that comparison. And really the way that we contextualize those characters in the Book of Mormon now are how the Smith family dynamic worked out. I love that comparison. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting idea. And uh, so the next few years, um, it, lots of ups and downs. I mean, you know, you've got the, the Kirtland Temple. Um, William apparently has this prophecy about the 12 going to England. The, the Kirtland Safety Society, I mentioned, we mentioned, you know, William getting into it in the temple. So it's uh, it's it's an up and down period for for William. Okay, back to Caroline now. You know, what can we what can we kind of piece together? So she has two children fairly early in their marriage, both girls, and we get descriptions of her by different people, and they very often will describe her as having dropsy. So it's a kind of this catch-all 19th century term for retaining water. So the hypothesis is either she's got congestive heart failure or maybe a kidney problem. So she's um, pretty terrible health virtually the whole time they're married. And so we get that kind of window into, into Caroline. Um, 
then by the end of the Missouri period, William apparently really turns on Joseph. And it's, this is one where you kind of have to be careful because again, it's a later story. It's Brigham telling it. William's left by this time. And so they're mad at him, but um, allegedly William quote, publicly expressed the hope that his brother Joseph would never get out of the hands of his enemies alive. And he also said, quote, Joseph Smith ought to have been hung up by the neck years ago and damn him. He will get it now. Anyhow. So yeah, I don't know what you pull out of it, but yeah, William and Joseph are not getting along real well. So good definition, good definition of frenemies. Yeah, seriously. And, uh, and I apologize. I have a cough drop, so my my throat is uh, very sore. I'm sick in the summer, which is the worst. So that's why I'm making yeah. these weird sounds. <laughs> so then the, the transition to Nauvoo, and William, he kind of chooses to not be a part of it. So he's living in another corner of Illinois, and uh, some of the other siblings will come and join him. And it, it was kind of fun to read about that because, well, I mean, the sisters in the Smith family whoever talks about them. I mean, again, talking about how women get written out of history, uh, you know, it's not just brothers in the Smith family. There's, there's sisters too. And uh, William seems to get along pretty well. It seems to be much better terms with the sisters and uh, their husbands uh, come to visit him quite a bit. And they'll, he runs a hotel for a while and they kind of come help him. So he's kind of doing his own thing for the first little while. And then Joseph Sr. dies in 1840, and it hits William pretty hard, and that seems to be the turning point where he decides he's going to come back and re-engage Mormonism again. And it takes some time, but that seems to be the the turning point. But we have uh, a sore spot because, I mean, all along he's still an apostle. They they don't ever drop him. (laughs) They think about it, and, you know— had it not been Joseph in charge, it's a good chance he's he's booted, but he's still an apostle. And if you remember during the early years of Nauvoo, most of the 12 are gone on mission to England, the mission that apparently William had prophesied. But he doesn't go. And, it, it you know, the, the 12 aren't missing this. I mean, they, they certainly notice he's not coming with them. And... William will try to justify himself by saying it's Caroline's health. You know, he can't leave her and the the kids. And, you know, there's definitely some truth there. I mean, it, it definitely does seem like that Caroline is, is in bed a lot of the time. And so there, there is certainly that, but uh, that's, that definitely creates a wedge in the 12. I mean, we've already got wedges, but that's, that's a big one is he doesn't seem to be part of them. Um, but now, finally, with all that background to kind of give you a sense of William's personality and, and makeup, he goes east. So his first trip is in 1841. It's one of these short-term ones. So he makes a tour through different cities and sets the foundations. And then in 1843, right apparently right before he's going to go back to the east and revisit things, he's married to his first plural wife. And... Brigham Young performs it. Her name is Mary Ann Covington Sheffield. She had been married. Um, trying to remember now if the first husband had died or she'd uh, separated from him. But finally, we get to hear from her. So thanks to the Temple Lock case, we have a brief, but at least a, an interesting account of her introduction to polygamy. And as with polygamy is almost always the case. We're not totally sure on dates, but it seems like when this happens, she's been a Mormon for three years. She's a British convert and she's been in Nauvoo for about one whole month. So imagine you're, I mean, you're British. So you're adjusting to American culture. You're adjusting to Mormonism. And then follow she says, I went to live at Orson Hyde's, and soon after that time, Joseph Smith wished to have an interview with me. He had the interview with me, and then asked me if I had ever heard of a man's having more wives than one, and I said, I had not. He then told me that he had received a revelation from God that a man could have more wives than one. 
So, welcome to Nauvoo, Marianne. I'm the prophet. We have this thing called polygamy. Have you heard about polygamy? I mean, we can. We've got to remember how how difficult this is for these women that, I mean, literally barely off the boat, and um, here's polygamy. So, kind of a interesting introduction to Nauvoo. Um, and it was fun as I was trying to find some stuff on Mary Ann to find family stories. I mean, we had, we had fun last night at the Wood Museum, the Wilford Wood Museum, where we heard kind of how the family portrays things. And one descendant says that, quote, she was married to the prophet's brother, William, but the prophet counseled her not to live with him. And she never did. <laughs> I don't know about that one. And then another one says uh, she remarries after William's excommunication down the road. Quote, Marianne moved to St. Louis and married Mr. Stratton at the request of the prophet. Um, they're married in 1846, so that would have been kind of tough. So, yeah, definitely the family has to struggle with how this uh, the polygamy aspect of their ancestors' life played out. I do think it would be difficult to be sealed to William based on what we know. About him, not only because of his proximity to the Smith family, which complicates a lot of things, right? It, it means that he has more status, more fame and celebrity for good and for ill. But he's also got this huge conflict constantly with his family and so I, and a temper. So I, I wonder what being married to him would have really been like. Well, let's add one more to the mix. Um, he's got some baggage. Uh, again... It involves John C. Bennett, so pulling apart what actually happened is not easy. But um, in 1842, as the spiritual wifery rumors start going around, the High Council investigates things. So they call in one woman, Sarah Miller, and she testifies that Chauncey Higby comes in and tries the famous line, as long as we don't tell anyone, we can take our pants off. It's okay. <laughs> and the next time Higby comes back to visit this um, visit Sarah, quote, William Smith came with him and told me that the doctrine which Higby taught me was true. So William seems to be tied up with Bennett and he'll meet him again later in strain years. So uh, William's got some baggage here, definitely. But it's, it's an interesting situation because Bennett obviously gets excommunicated. Higby gets excommunicated, but nothing happens to William. And in fact, during all of these um, subsequent high council meetings, William doesn't ever come up again. You know, what's, what's the deal here? I mean, William has the plural wife seal to him that we mentioned before. He's in the anointed quorum. So was Sarah making this all up? about William, I think we can probably both agree that that's a bad route to take. So let's, let's assume that Sarah is being completely honest here. So why does William get different treatment then? Um, we've already talked about how Joseph seems to step in and try to take his brother's side. So it's very possible that he comes in and, and uh, like we talked about with Sam Brannan, when Brigham Young decides to just throw the, the mantle over it and, and shudder the situation. Very likely that uh, something like this could have happened. And later, Lorenzo Snow will say that William was actually brought before the high council, but doesn't seem to be any evidence for it. So it seems like Joseph more than likely probably just steps in and uh, does some damage control there. But, uh, okay, so back to... William gets sealed and then now leaves for the east. He takes Caroline with him, and on the way, they they stop in Philadelphia. They have a doctor treater there. And also while in Philadelphia, Elder gets up and starts preaching about polygamy. And William is left with the responsibility to do the whole celestial marriage contrasted with spiritual wifery defense. And so he's, he's putting out fires there. And then by 18, early, early 1844, he's settled in now along the East Coast. So in New York quite a bit and in Boston quite a bit. And as we mentioned in the Brandon episode, 
he, Brannon, and George Adams are kind of our unofficial presidency in the area. And uh, as we mentioned there also, um, William's biographer, and we've got to mention here, forgot to at the first, um, Kyle Walker's biography of William Smith is excellent. So that combined with Connell O'Donovan's excellent research on the Boston area and um, Will Bagley's documentary history of Sam Brannan, all excellent sources. And the consensus does seem to be that William is our source for how polygamy starts to spread there. And it's an interesting period for William because you have all of the chaos and the controversy, but for the first time, he kind of gets to be in charge and he's out of Joseph's shadow, um, you know, hundreds of miles away in a letter writing era. He can kind of do what he wants. And I think William really enjoys it and his speaking talents are, are on display here. And so it's, while it is chaotic and controversial, I think it was probably an enjoyable time for William because he does kind of get to be in the driver's seat. But then so we talked about with Brannon, when Wood, Wilford Woodruff comes through in late 1844, that's when things fall apart. And so Woodruff hears some stories and he does some investigating. And he learns that these guys have been preaching and performing marriages. And this was an interesting case with William. He marries two sisters. And one of them, Sarah Ann Libby, after William is excommunicated, will remarry George A. Smith. And one of her sons is John Henry Smith, apostle and first president counselor, and then the grandmother of George Albert. So I've always, you know, after reading that, I wondered if they ever talked about their brief time with William to their descendants. That'd be interesting to know if they did. Um, so William's biographer, with just a little understatement, says, quote, Adams and Brannon also received plural wives with very little oversight, but the details are sketchy and evidence scant. Yeah, it's very difficult to nail anything down here. They're on the East Coast, but it's the Wild West out there. And uh, there's, you know, they're, they're trying to keep people quiet and it's, it's crazy time. So we hit quite a bit of the the uh, fiasco there with Brannon. So if you remember from that episode, when Sam Brannon stays in the East to oversee things, and then William and Caroline will come back to Nauvoo before Brannon. And when William gets there, so this is early 1845, and he discovers that George Adams, their former associate back in the East, has set up one of many rival organizations and his pitch is trying to get Joseph Smith III to be a leader. But, you know, he's only 12 and he's obviously not ready. But George kind of tries to set something up here. And he dangles the offer of patriarch before William. So if you remember by this point, William is the only surviving Smith brother. So Don, Carlo, Don Carlos had died in 1841. And then boom, 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 1844. Joseph and Hiram, obviously, but then also Samuel had died. So William is now the only male Smith left. And that obviously means something, and Adams recognizes that. But he turns down Adams. As we mentioned, he he goes and defends his colleague Sam Brannan and gets him reinstated. And then William's world just kind of blows up. So two weeks after he, he meets with the Twelve, Caroline finally passes away. So it's it's said that uh, all of the strain of having to leave Missouri and kind of being in unsettled circumstances really took the final toll on her and she passes away. And interestingly, William does not attend the funeral. He claims it's because there's a danger to his life because he is the last surviving Smith brother. And, you know, there probably is something to that but pretty soon he's preaching left and right in Nauvoo so there's some definite hints that their marriage was was not great it seems like William kind of resented Caroline's health problems 
you know, when he finally does re-engage Mormonism, he throws himself into it. And so I think he kind of, yeah, he and Caroline don't seem to get along well, which is, is sad. And well, and again, Caroline, again, when you look at his brothers and their relationships with women, you know, Joseph is deliberately sealing himself to prominent women who have, um, who are very active and involved in the community, right? And so, yeah. and and Hiram too. So to see yeah. to see um, his own wife maybe be held back by that a little bit, I think probably plays into this issue that he's second best. He never gets you know to do all the things that his brothers are doing. But that's of course me just speculating. No, I I think there's something there to that. Sure. It's interesting. We'll talk about it more later, but William and Emma's relationships actually seems to be pretty good. There's accounts of Emma helping with um, William's daughters off and on. And so they seem to get along pretty well. And again, we're, I mean, who doesn't Emma take care of? I mean, in the, the midst of all the chaos and her incredibly difficult life, we have all these stories of her loving and caring for people. So, you know, one more pitch for Emma, not that there were, you know, got to see a document written by Emma last night or anything, but we like Emma. So the day of Caroline's funeral, William meets with the 12. This is when they discuss Brandon's case. And, and William is obviously on trial as well. I mean, he's very much implicated in what's going on. But then he brings up at this meeting the question of patriarch to the church. The 12 agree that it's kind of his birthright and they ordain him. I mean, the the relationships between William and the 12 aren't as strained as they will be, but I mean, there's, there's certainly some tension. And so it kind of seems like they're willing to placate him how they can to kind of keep him under control and, and with them. So Parley P. Pratt is still back in New York. He's now the editor of The Prophet that William had started. And while he's there, he's hearing even more stuff about William and Brannon. He starts publishing some editorials talking about this. And William, I mean, if by now you can't guess the result of this, he goes on the offensive. <laughs> Problem is, is he can't get anyone to print his rebuttals. So John Taylor is the editor of The Nauvoo Neighbor, which is also William's old newspaper, and he kind of pretends like William doesn't exist, and he will not print any of William's very fiery rebuttals. But this question of patriarch, and is it patriarch to the church? Is it presiding patriarch? Is it patriarch over the church? The, the nature of the office is very important. And part of the confusion is that Hiram, who had the office, was also assistant president. And it really seems like had he survived Carthage, that he would have been the successor. And so in a lot of minds, clearly in William's mind, these two roles of patriarch to the church and assistant president have merged. And so the 12 and particularly Brigham Young have to make clear, not just among themselves, but publicly that William is no challenge to Brigham Young's authority that yes, he's patriarch, but you know, that, that doesn't give him the role that Hiram had, you know, he's, he's not a challenge to the 12 and it gets trickier. We have Lucy Mack has some dreams and she and the family seem to see these as revelatory dreams that concern William and Brigham hears about this apparently comes and talks to Lucy and they, it seems to be, reasonably friendly. Brigham's relationship to Lucy wasn't quite as fiery as his with Emma, it seems like. So they, they seem to, to be relatively friendly. Brian, is there anyone who's written about Brigham Young's connection with the Smith family? Because if you actually look at the history later on, um, you know, I don't want to spoil this, but Brigham does not get along with the Smith family. His, his record with even, even with Hiram is not, is not great. Um, so I think, I think that it's interesting that he ends up taking Joseph's church, especially all the Brighamites have such surety that this is what Joseph would have wanted. But in so many ways, Brigham was always 
seeming to be at odds with one of the Smiths. Yeah. I mean, Brigham certainly has lots of responsibility I mean, early on. I mean, I mean, all along the way, he's kind of the, the go-to guy in the quorum. But I mean, a very telling episode is that Brigham learns about plural marriage before Hiram does. And part of that is simply because Brigham seems willing to accept it, whereas Hiram is adamant that this is, you know, this is John C. Bennett's stuff. So that's that's a very interesting period because, you know, Hiram goes to Brigham and Brigham's like, yeah, it's true. You probably ought to get on board with this. So, yeah, there's definitely some tensions. We hate to psychoanalyze, but you could you could certainly see Brigham being jealous of the, the Smith brothers. I mean, you know, he's Mr. Mr. Organized, Mr. Whip everyone into line. And, you know, you could definitely see him being jealous that he's not the, the right hand. I mean, he, he kind of is, but he's nominally not the right hand man. I mean, Hiram has the. Yeah. The, at brother. the end of the day, he'll never be Joseph's brother. Yeah. But also another theory, if I'm, if we're just speculating here again, no evidence to back this up, just my opinion, but it's possible too, that maybe Joseph, you know, confided in someone like Brigham, the annoyances he had, the distrust he had with his family members. And so Brigham felt justified in treating them as such after Joseph's death. Sure. I mean, <laughs> William alone, I, Joseph's got to vent to somebody about, you know, the struggles of trying to keep William in line. So yeah, that's, that's very plausible. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely tensions between Brigham and, and Smith family generally. And so what's interesting that given this is, you know, despite all this is Brigham is the one who will seal William to his next plural wife. Um, and it's only a month after Caroline's death. So remember, he still had, there, there's still Marianne that he'd married two years earlier. And she seems to have always lived close to William, but never same house. And it's, uh, it, it, I mean, it's always tough to, to figure out what the relationship was like. But later in life, Marianne doesn't seem to be too negative about William. So it may have been reasonably positive, but so anyway, she's, she's still, she's still married to William. And then uh, Mary, William now marries Mary Jane Rollins. And she apparently will be his legal wife for the next few years, which will create some issues down the road. So at this point, at the time of the marriage, William's 34 and Mary Jane's only 15. So, um, I mean, just imagine being a 15-year-old now being married to William Smith. Not overly surprisingly, uh, doesn't go well. And William then marries another plural wife about a month or two later named Priscilla Mogridge. And Mary Jane will leave him at that point. William's biographer speculates that Mary Jane and maybe even Priscilla didn't know about Marianne, this plural wife that's still living there in Nauvoo. So who knows? Priscilla will be brought to testify in the Templot case also. She said, quote, I was taught that principle by William Smith in 1845 and married him shortly afterward. He told me that his brother had received a revelation to, to that effect, and he taught it to me and practiced it. Period. <laughs> be nice to have a little more detail, but at least we have that. <laughs> so, um, Priscilla apparently couldn't remember who had married them. And couldn't think of a time when she was ever publicly acknowledged as William's wife. So it's a pretty, it's such a tough line to walk. I mean, you know, she probably can't tell anyone that she's William's wife and uh, just kind of has to take on that role as best she can. So, well, and let me, this, I want to point this out again. We have this idea of early Mormon men as these like lecherous sex fiends. Mm -hmm. And it, while I'm sure that that absolutely did exist, a lot of these marriages were not about connection or attraction. We know that some of them were, but it's mm -hmm. impossible to know how these two felt about each other. Were they attracted to each other? Did William see her and say, I want to make her my bride? Or was she, like assigned to him, it's very complicated to see how these relationships formed because they are clearly not important because they don't show up in the historical record anywhere. 
Yeah, I mean, we're we're obviously grateful for the morsels we get, you know, entries in Clayton's diaries and Temple testimonies and the affidavits that Joseph Smith, Joseph F. collects. You know, we're we're obviously we love all that stuff, but man, it would be nice to have. I mean, imagine how incredible one very detailed, very candid diary of a plural wife during Nauvoo would be. I mean, that would just be, oh, you know, what were the dynamics? How did it, yeah. Where did they meet? Did, how did it happen? How did they live together? You know, all of these questions. How did they explain it to their friends and family? How did they um, feel about their partners? Things like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of these questions that we can, you know, and some things we can hint at, some things we can speculate on, but you know, we so many questions that just remain unanswered, sadly. Well, and I just want to throw in a critique about documentary history, which is the current mode of scientific history, right? We take things from documents that we have. But if you look now, I mean, the things that are written in pen to paper are not a true full picture of what life is like. You know, things can be written down that don't reflect what actually happened. Uh, you don't record the majority of your day-to-day life in documents. Yeah. So I, at the end of the day, we conclude that Joseph Smith didn't practice polygamy then, right? Yeah. No, no, (laughs) no, no. Yeah. It's, you know, we have quote unquote rules that we try to follow that try to, that do try to keep things systematized, but you know, it's, it's art uh, just as much as it is science. Yeah, and, and the closest thing that I have now is, you know, dealing with current polygamists today and, and seeing how they experienced it. Because at the end of the day, there are differences. But 200 years ago is not that that far in history. People still reacted the same. The human brain still functions the same way. So, I mean, that's the closest that we have. But I think you're right. It's it's a tragedy because imagine being sealed to William Smith at this time. I mean, these women, it's not that they didn't have opinions on them. Of course they did. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to know them. (laughs) And uh, so then after the marriage to Priscilla, William's philosophy seems to be, well, if one plural wife is good, then five more must just be awesome. So boom, 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 boom. He marries Mary Jones, Henriette Rice, Lucinda Curtis, Mary Jane Rollins' sister, and Sophia Rollins. And we know virtually nothing about them. (laughs) So... Um, as was often the case with Mormon leaders that are well-connected, um, particularly in the late Nauvoo period, they marry plural wives just like crazy. And, you know, many of them, most of them don't turn out well. Some of them don't survive longer than a couple months. And uh, so, yeah, it's a very chaotic and fast-moving period. Um, one of the oddest things we talked about Emma for a minute, but there's a rumor published in the Warsaw signal quote, it is gossiped about that Smith, William Smith will in a decent time, marry Emma widow of his brother, the prophet. Fascinating. Interesting. I didn't hear that. (laughs) It's probably really is nothing more than a rumor that Tom Sharp decides to throw in there, but I mean, Emma put up with a lot. I just don't see her putting up with that. Well, I mean, it's interesting because really their relationship does seem to be pretty good. But um, given her dislike of polygamy, probably not super credible, but kind of an interesting idea, you know, and, and a window into all of the things floating about in the public regarding Nauvoo and polygamy. And then big turning point, August 1845. William gives a sermon that he titles a synopsis of the first chapter of the gospel by St. William. And he openly preaches polygamy in Nauvoo saying, if a sister gives me her hand upon the spiritual wife system to share with me the fate and destinies of time and eternity, I will not be ashamed of her before the public. What I do in the secret chamber, I would do in the broad daylight. I will not be ashamed to be seen with you in the street. Then he continues Now, don't get scared, brethren, and leave the congregation before I get through. It is such an awful doctrine, I know, and I am just the man to get into the business and get out of it, too, for I am not the author of God's works, nor am I to blame for what he has revealed. I mean, this is a bombshell. You have not just an apostle, you have Joseph's brother, who is openly talking about polygamy in Nauvoo. 
And uh, my favorite part is we have reports of people listening. So some women apparently, quote, threw up their white handkerchiefs, covering their faces in disgust. I mean, can you picture a more Victorian scene? <laughs> They're putting their handkerchiefs up. Oh, the horror. It's like, read the room, William Smith. Read the room. Seriously. Um, 1845 William... is not the time nor the place. Yeah, this is, this is, come on, man. Um, William Clayton says, quote, the people appeared disgusted and many left the ground. So well, they, yeah, were, in, they were in for a surprise in just a few years. Yeah, seriously. So again, just like it happened back in Boston, William is breaking the fight club rules. You don't talk about polygamy. And uh, it's very interesting because, I mean, as you re- as I read those words of Williams, I could hear John Taylor, right? I'm not ashamed. You know, we're not, we're not hiding anything. We are, we are boldly declaring this. And, you know, later in Utah, that's the okay way to go about it. But in Nauvoo, no one is happy with this. And uh, so right after this, Parley P. Pratt comes back from the East and based on the additional tales he's heard, he convinces the 12 that William, he's really a loose cannon and he's, um, William wants to leave and, and Pratt's like, no, 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 no. We've got to keep him here. He's got to be under our, our supervision or he's going to go crazy back East. And then William hears rumors that the Nauvoo police have got a hit out against him again. Who knows? But uh, it's he takes it to be credible enough that he hits the road. So he takes the daughters, which, geez, uh, the poor daughters. Their mom dies. William marries, you know, what, six plural wives in the space of a couple months. And it doesn't seem like the plural wives ever take care of the daughters. Some of William's sisters, Emma. Lucy Mack, you know, they kind of get passed around, so they've got a crazy life. Then at the October conference in Nauvoo, his name is presented as one of the 12, and Pratt immediately objects. So, you know, William's this interloper, he's challenging Brigham, and Pratt says, quote, his doctrine and conduct have not had a savory influence. Maybe an understatement there. So the conference rejects William as patriarch and apostle, and that's it. That, that is the breaking point. William is done. So he has 500 copies of a proclamation printed in which he denounces Brigham as a Pontius Pilate. But interestingly, he also totally sets off the hypocrisy alarm. He says Brigham and others had, quote, several houses filled up with women who have been secretly married to them. Yeah, William's been married approximately 10 times by this point. So... He's in no place to speak. Um, he sends it to newspapers in the area. Very interesting combination of people. So William had started a newspaper called The Wasp in Nauvoo. This is like 1842. And he'd gotten into it with Thomas Sharp, who is editing the Warsaw Signal just down the river from him. I mean, one he calls him Tom Ass in one thing. I mean, William, man, he, he knew how to stir the pot, but now Sharp gets a copy of this proclamation and he's more than happy to print it on the front page of his paper. So we get an interesting marriage of former enemies. And so when the pamphlet hits Nauvoo, they excommunicate him immediately. And it doesn't seem like any of William's plural wives stick with him after this. So, yeah, I mean, most of them, other than his first plural wife, who said that Smith divorced himself from her, they all divorce him. Yep. And yeah, they they are essentially assigned out. We mentioned the Libby sisters that married George A. And they kind of just scatter. And that's the end of William's Brigham Mormonism. But that's certainly not the end of William's Mormonism. He bounces everywhere. So he goes first with String for a while and meets back up with John C. Bennett, marries another plural wife there. Maybe Bennett performs it. But then String, who is early on in anti-polygamy mode, 
excommunicates William. And so William bounces on and, you know, uh, I've joked that if your Mormon organization was in existence for more than 15 minutes, at some point, William shows up asking for a position. Most notably, he'll bug Joseph Smith III forever for something. I mean, he wants to be a counselor and Joseph III is smart enough to know, don't let William have the keys. So he gives him a, a patriarch office to kind of quiet him down. But so another marriage. So I mentioned earlier that Mary Jane, the 15 year old was his legal wife. There's a long, ugly, bitter divorce. Once that's finalized, William then marries Roxy Ann Grant. So the younger sister of his first wife, Caroline, remember she was seven when William met her, which is a little weird. Um, this one only lasts three years. Roxy Ann discovers the past plural marriages and William's certainly not opposed to future ones. And so she leaves and takes their child and, and, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, given his public declaration that he's not ashamed and he wouldn't hide it, how his wife's felt like maybe he wasn't as good of a communicator at home. Doesn't seem to be. And she divorces him in 53, right? So he's now excommunicated and out. And so she wouldn't have been accepting this doctrine in the same context that Brighamites would have. Definitely not. Yeah. And so we have this period where all of the, well, I mean, as you've talked about, you have a podcast about it, as I recall, every Mormon group has to deal with polygamy at some point. And so, you know, Strang has to reckon with it. The RLDS have to reckon with, I mean, all these groups that William ends up with, they have to figure out, do we, do we believe it? Do we practice it? Do we do it openly? You know, so they all kind of have to come to grips with it. So yeah, Roxy Ann would definitely be seeing it in very different contexts than a Brighamite Mormon wife would, for sure. He'll marry twice more before the end of his life, sequentially this time. So one wife dies and then he remarries. And then he finally dies in 1894. So he lives with the distinction of being the only Smith brother for a solid 50 years. And it's it certainly helps shape his identity. And didn't ever really reconcile with the Brighamites. Didn't have a good relationship no. with them. No. In, in 1855, he makes some attempt. I don't know how how much his heart was in it to kind of to, to come back. And it's interesting. I mean, we talked about Brigham's tension with the Smith family. And all along, at least publicly, he leaves the door wide open and again, at least publicly seems to encourage that if any of the, the Joseph Smith sons, Joseph Smith III, Alexander, you know, David Hiram later on, any of them, if they will come to Utah and and take their place, he seems to welcome them. But um, <laughs> William wants Brigham to pay his way there. And Brigham kind of throws up the audience. He's like, if you want to pay for William to come, knock yourselves out but yeah that's the only only time that william really reaches out william had quite the life it was he packed in a lot in his his 83 years so well that's great is there anything else you think people should know about william oh man go go read his biography um kyle walker the author came into the into benchmark the other day and i told him thanks again i I had read most of it when it came out, but that's been a few years. And going back, it's, it really is an excellent biography. I think he tries to be sympathetic to William and and try to understand where he's coming from. But it's, yeah, William, such an interesting life. So, Yeah, and I think that he really is a huge part in this Boston era because he has a Smith name and he also has this sort of chaos that he brings to the branch. Yep. Definitely. Okay. Well, Brian, thanks again for coming on. Um, you're going to be at Sunstone this summer. Tell people how they can meet you and shake your hand. Yes. So uh, as always, Benchmark Books will be there at the, the new home now at the Mountain America Expo Center. So we'll have Lots of fun books, including some of the ones we've talked about in the, the Boston episodes. So come and you say guys, hi. And buy books from Benchmark. They are 
They are the main source where I get my books. They're great. Everybody that works there is ridiculously knowledgeable about Mormon history. So go and support them. Come to Sunstone July 25th through the 28th and visit Benchmark Books and bring some money to specifically buy books and tell Benchmark that Brian Buchanan sent you. Awesome. Okay, thanks, Brian. Thanks for letting me on again. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.